First, if the environment is defined as a substract of human culture, materiality is a term that applies more evenly to humans and non-humans. I am a material configuration. The pigeons in the park are material compositions. The viruses, parasites and heavy metals in my flesh and in pigeon flesh are materialities, as are neurochemicals, hurricane winds, E. coli and the dust on the floor. Materiality is a rubric that tends to horizontalize the relations between humans, biota and abiota. It draws human attention sideways, away from an ontological rank, great chain of being, and toward a great appreciation of the complex entanglements of humans and non-humans. Here, the implicit moral imperative of Western thought, though shall identify and defend what is special about man, loses some of its salience. A second advantage hinges on the inflection of matter as vibrant, vital, energetic, lively, quivering, vibratory, evanescent and efflorescent. In a world of lively matter, we see that biochemical and biochemical social systems can sometimes unexpectedly bifurcate or choose developmental paths that could not have been foreseen, for they are governed by an emergent rather than a linear or deterministic causality. And once we see this, we will need an alternative both to the idea of nature as purposive, harmonious process and to the idea of nature as a blind mechanism. A vital materialism interrupts both the teleological organicism of some ecologists and the machine image of nature governing many of their opponents. A third advantage of the notion of vital materiality compared to environment is that vital materiality better captures an alien quality of our own flesh and in doing so reminds humans of the very radical character of the fractious kinship between the human and the non-human. My own body is material and yet this vital materiality is not fully or exclusively human. My flesh is populated and constituted by different swarms of foreigners. The crook of my elbow, for example, is a special ecosystem, a bountiful home to no fewer than six tribes of bacteria. They are helping to moisturize the skin by processing the raw fats it produces. The bacteria in the human microbiome collectively possess at least a hundred times as many genes as the mere 20,000 or so in the human genome. In a world of vibrant matter, it is thus not enough to say that we are embodied. We are rather an array of bodies, many different kinds of them in a nested set of microbiomes. If more people mark this fact more of the time, if we were more attentive to the indispensable foreignness that we are, would we continue to produce and consume in the same violently reckless ways? It is very hard to keep focused on the oxymoronic truism that the human is not exclusively human, that we are made up of it. But I think this truism and the cultivated talent for remembering it forms a key part of the newish self that needs to emerge, the self of a new self-interest.
Survival in the future uh, for the individual will mean releasing into the flow of an information-based economy, and for that matter, an information-based bioecology. Survival in the future will mean plugging in to the vast neural network that is in individuals 
in relationship to each other, triggering electronic impulses, the accumulated energy of which will form a massive social brain, the boundary between the individual brain and the social brain dissolves into the fluid flow of information. We're talking about survival in the future for the individual prepared to dissolve knowledge into the flow of the network. That is the threshold relationship between individual cognition and the neural network dissolves, releasing, so that the individual becomes part of an accumulated repository of collective knowledge. Questions of survival in the future will hinge on the capacity of the individual to dissolve into the flow of information to dissolve into the flow of information dissolve into the flow of information into the flow of information to dissolve into the flow of
1968, with the help of Ian Somerville and Anthony Balch, I took a short passage of my recorded voice and cut it into intervals of 1 24th of a second movie tape movie tape is larger and easier to splice and rearranged the order of the 24th second intervals of recorded speech. The original words are quite unintelligible, but new words emerge. The voice is still there and you can immediately recognize the speaker. Also the tone of the voice remains. If the tone is friendly, hostile, sexual, poetic, sarcastic, lifeless, despairing, this will be apparent in the altered sequence. I did not realize at the time that I was using a technique that has been in existence since 1881. I quote from Mr. French's article, Designs for speech scramblers go back to 1881, and the desire to make telephone and radio communications unintelligible to third parties has been with us ever since. The message is scrambled in transmission and then unscrambled at the other end. There are many of these speech scrambling devices that work on different principles. Another device which saw service during the war was the time division scrambler. The signal was chopped up into elements 0.005 cm long. These elements are taken in groups or frames and rearranged in a new sequence. Imagine that the speech recorded is recorded on magnetic tape, which is cut into pieces 0.02 long and the pieces rearranged into a new sequence. This can actually be done and gives a good idea what speech sounds like when scrambled in this way. This I had done in 1968, and this is an extension of the cut-up method. The simplest cut-up cuts a page down the middle and across the middle into four sections. Section 1 is then placed with section 4, and section 3 with section 2 in a new sequence. Carried further, we can break the page down into smaller and smaller units in altered sequences. The original purpose of scrambling devices was to make the message unintelligible without scrambling the code. Another use for speech scramblers could be to impose thought control on mass scale. Consider the human body and nervous system as unscrambling devices. A common virus like the cold sore could sensitize the subject to unscrambled messages. Drugs like LSD and D-Man could also act as unscrambling devices. Moreover, the mass media could sensitize millions of people to receive scrambled versions of the same set of data. Remember that when the human nervous system unscrambles a scrambled message, this will seem to the subject like his very own ideas which just occurred to him, which indeed it did. Take a card, any card. In most cases, he will not suspect the extraneous origin. That is the run of the mill newspaper reader who receives the scrambled message uncritically and assumes that it reflects his own opinions independently arrived at. On the other hand, the subject may recognize or suspect the extraneous origins of voices that are literally hatching out in his head. Then we have a classic syndrome of paranoid psychosis. Subject hears voices. Anyone can be made to hear voices with scrambling techniques. It is not difficult to expose him to the actual scrambled message. 
any part of which can be made intelligible. This can be done with street recorders, recorders in cars, doctor radio and TV sets. In his own flat if possible, if not in some bar or restaurant he frequents. If he doesn't talk to himself, he soon will do. Bye. 
The starting point, for me, remains the nature-culture continuum. But by now, we need to insert into this framework the monistic insight that, as Genevieve Lloyd put it, we are all part of nature. This statement, which he frames in a monistic ontology based on Spinoza's philosophy, is sobering as well as inspiring. It is further complicated for us citizens of the third millennium by the fact that we actually inhabit a nature-culture continuum which is both technologically mediated and globally enforced. This means that we cannot assume a theory of subjectivity that takes for granted naturalistic foundationalism, nor can we rely on a social constructivist and hence dualistic theory of the subject which disavows the ecological dimension. Instead, critical theory needs to fulfill potentially contradictory requirements. The first is to develop a dynamic and sustainable notion of vitalist self-organizing materiality. The second is to enlarge the frame and scope of subjectivity along the transversal lines of post-anthropocentric relations. The idea of subjectivity as an assemblage that includes non-human agents has a number of consequences. Firstly, it implies that subjectivity is not the exclusive prerogative of anthropos. Secondly, that it is not linked to transcendental reason. Thirdly, that it is unhinged from the dialectics of recognition. And lastly, that it is based on the immanence of relations. The challenge for critical theory is momentous. We need to visualize the subject as a transversal entity encompassing the human, our genetic neighbors, the animals, and the earth as a whole, and to do so within an understandable language. Let us pause on the later for a minute as it raises the issue of representation, which is crucial to the humanities and for critical theory. Finding an adequate language for post-anthropocentrism means that the resources of the imagination, as well as the tools of critical intelligence, need to be enlisted for this task. The collapse of the nature-culture divide requires that we need to devise a new vocabulary, with new figurations to refer to the elements of our post-human embodied and embedded subjectivity. The limitations of the social constructivist method show up here and need to be compensated by more conceptual creativity. Most of us who are trained in social theory, however, have experienced at least some degree of discomfort at the thought that some elements of our subjectivity may not be totally socially constructed. Part of the legacy of the Marxist left consists, in fact, in a deeply rooted suspicion towards the natural order and green politics. As if this mistrust of the natural were not enough, we also need to reconceptualize the relation to the technological artifact as something as intimate, as close as nature used to be. The technological apparatus is our new milieu, and this intimacy is far more complex and generative than the prosthetic mechanical extension that modernity had made of it. Throughout this change of parameters, I also want to be ever mindful of the importance of the politics of locations and keep investigating who exactly is the we 
who is positing all these queries in the first place. This new scheme for rethinking post-human subjectivity is as rich as it is complex, but it is grounded in real life, world historical conditions that are confronting us with pressing urgency.
And that's the problem with a lot of uh, reconstructions. They're often done for the media. Here's a blurb for a uh, new dinosaur book. Dinosaur books come out all the time. They become more and more outrageous looking. Here's a herd of them, babies that have different shapes than the adults. And these, as it so happens, are of animals that we don't have any juvenile dinosaur skeletons of. They have all kinds of surface texture and expressions and uh, implied behavior. These things are roaring around in some kind of a stampede. Uh, well, I mean, uh, I think there's enough weird things that are real without having to uh, more or less create some new ones. Dinosaurs in many ways parallel the, the human type of evolutionary studies in the sense that a lot of people that do it are drawn in more by the, the theater aspect uh, rather than the scientific aspects of it. I mean, it seems to me common sense that you can't tell the color of an extinct organism uh, or you can't tell what sound it makes. We don't have any larynx. I mean, you don't have any of these soft parts preserved in these animals. Uh, all that's cartilage or connective tissue and it's something not present. Uh, you have backbone, you have the palate and other things, but you don't have any of the devices that are actually concerned in making noise. Reptiles or modern squamata go in for peculiar kinds of tongues. Uh, what kind of tongues do dinosaurs have? Well, nobody knows. Uh, you can hypothesize almost anything to get any kind of sound. So that is real science fiction. Music and Sounds by Henry Cowell and Chris Byrne, Nanette Woman in Northern Arctic Russia, Reberg and Bauer, Laraji, Tenko and Ikuemori, Jailene, Rusigan, Gregory Whitehead, Going, John Wall, Vosizotiku, Porest, Richard Chatier, Anthony Child, Yannick Dobi, Andes Sombi, Don TJ, Marilyn Crispell and Jerry Hemingway. Readings of texts by Jane Bennett, William Burroughs and Rosie Brydotti.